that we can declare and exalt your name and that you are active, alive, and at work in each one of our lives. And Lord, you know all about our life situations and where we're at and what's going on, and we thank you for that, that you are faithful, ever faithful in your plan and your purposes for all things. We thank you for this holiday season, this Christmas season, Lord, as we anticipate uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first advent, and we celebrate that and remember it. But, Lord, help us to remember why you came and the whole purpose of this and your eternal and cosmic plan that you are carrying out. We thank you for the word of God that you've given to us and that it is in our heart language. We praise you and thank you for that great blessing. And we thank you for the freedom we enjoy to meet here in this campus. We thank you for your faithfulness through the decades for this local expression of the body of Christ. And Lord, as you give us our days, may we always reflect and remember that you are with us. You never leave us or forsake us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that as we worship you today and look into your word, that you would teach us, guide us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you would transform us because of this encounter with you and with your word and with one another. We thank you for each one here. We thank you for our church family and for those traveling and away this weekend. We pray for them, for eyes to see your blessings. We also thank you and praise you for our guests and family members from afar. And we thank you that they're with us here today. And we pray that each one of us would uh, see your blessings, that we would go away from this place changed because of this encounter with your word. And we thank you for our children and children's church as well in the nursery. We thank you for those who care for them. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, for blessing us with one another. And we thank you for this time together. Pray that you would teach us today in the power of your Holy Spirit, for it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you've already decorated your house with some Christmas things. Uh, Some elves came and did all of this. It just all showed up. And it's very nice. We thank them uh, who uh, put all of our decorations up. But maybe at your house you have a nativity set. And uh, it seems to be a common uh, element of Christmas decorations, a nativity set. And I was thinking of some of my family. I have a brother-in-law, my sister's husband, down in Colorado. And when they put up their nativity set, he puts the wise men in another room. And then every day of Advent, they get a little closer to the, I guess it's a crash to the nativity set itself. And so the children are always running in. Where are the wise men? Where are they at? And they're making their journey from the east. That's one of the keys. They come from the east. And uh, so he does that uh, as they anticipate uh, uh, celebrating and worshiping the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Another nativity set I remember was uh, when we lived in Dallas, Texas, and uh, Uh, We lived out in Garland, which is a suburb to the east, and we would drive up to North Dallas, which is a more affluent part of Dallas than Garland. And, uh, in fact, Highland Park, where there were mansions, and we would drive, and those folks, not only did they have nativity sets, but they would have full size, and some of them had live animals in their yards, and we would drive through and see the lights and see all these gigantic and full-size nativity sets in their yards. It was quite the sight But I was thinking about nativity, and as we are in this first Sunday of Advent, uh, as we anticipate going the next four Sundays in a series about uh, the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I was thinking about nativity, which is really a Latin term that's been uh, put into English, but nativity is about beginnings. It's about beginnings, and uh, we think of that at Christmas time. We are focused on beginnings. 
And the word simply means birth, but it's a beginning. You know, every time there is a baby born, we want to know all the vitals. How much did it weigh? What's its name? How long is it? You know, uh, all those kinds of things we want to know about it. But uh, to what end do we want to know? And why was this child born? And why is a child born? But when it comes to Jesus Christ, and we think about the Lord Jesus and his birth in Bethlehem, uh, the hymn that, or the, the, the Christmas song we sing asks the question best, where it says, What child is this who is laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? And that is a big question mark. What child is this? Why did a birth that took place in an animal cave or a stall in this backwater town of Bethlehem with perhaps a population of no more than 500 make such a mark on the world history? You have to ask yourself that question. It impacted even the calendar we use today, the Julian calendar. And after all, we are describing an event that takes place really commonly all over the world all the time. And so why does this one birth transfix the world? And why is there this worldwide holiday, basically? And so what is the interest in that? I remember as a child looking at my parents' nativity set and imagining and playing, moving the figures around and thinking about it and uh, wondering about this babe in the manger and wondering about the purpose of this as a child and the wonder of all of the celebration and the run-up to the Christmas holiday itself. But I was thinking about births in general and thinking about nativity and about birth. And, you know, that's one of the standards in each one of our lives is there's two dates that are standards in our lives, the day we were born and the day we pass from this earth, the day we die. And what is incredible is what does the middle part mean? A date of birth, a date of death, this day that we were born, what does the middle part mean? Why does this life have any meaning at all? And so we go back to what Jesus Christ said. I'm going to set the tone. We are starting because oftentimes we think nativity and Advent begins uh, at uh, this four weeks running up to Christmas. We look back and we think Advent began. Well, actually, Jesus was born, according to Harold Honer's chronology of the life of Christ, in the winter of 5 and 4 B.C. And uh, so did it start then? No, it started clear back, of course, technically in Eternity past, God determined this was his plan. By the way, I want to emphasize again that even though the world looks out of order, out of sorts, that everything is crazy, a lot of adversity, difficulty, wars, and everything, and yet God in his infinite foreknowledge knew all best possible plans. He knew all possible ways of carrying out all of history, and this is his plan. And so we can trust him. And again, it's about the sovereignty of God that he is working out all things in all places for all people for the good of his people, and for his glory. Remember, God is a sovereign God, as Scripture teaches us. And so I was thinking about birth and about death and about this part in between. And uh, obviously none of us know how long we have, but yet it is a great emphasis to remind ourselves about nativity is the birth part, the beginning part. Okay, what's next? What is lasting? Well, Scripture really tells us that in the advent of the Savior, the Messiah, it really begins in Genesis chapter 3. Let me set the tone for us today, because this session or these series of messages in the next four weeks, God willing, will focus on the gospel message through Scripture, the advent, the nativity in Scripture. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, I'll begin reading 
in verse 24. Of course, we know that Genesis chapters 1 through 3 it contains the creation account, the creation of all that we see in the physical universe, as well as human beings, Adam and Eve. And uh, we come here in chapter 2, verse 24, and Adam has just been introduced to Eve, uh, who's been taken from his side, his rib. She is her, his, uh, his adequate helper, his necessary ally, is how you would trans- translate the Hebrew. But in verse 24, chapter 2, and if you'd follow along as I read, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Note that. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, nor touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day, in that day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like, you, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband and with her, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So basically, Adam and Eve saw the physical practicality of this forbidden fruit, this tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, that it was pleasing to the eyes and that it had the potential to give them great wisdom. And of course, here wisdom is talking about divine wisdom, about super knowledge, about knowledge of all things. And so Satan has deceived them, and that is the beginning of the the, uh, stage for the first nativity pageant, if you will. And so that is the beginning of life here in the Garden of Eden. And I was thinking about life lists. You know, we are a people who desire experiences, especially in this day and age. It's about experiencing all sorts of things. I was reading about Phoebe Snedinger, Phoebe Snedinger had a life list. In fact, life lists are really not new. They began in about the 5th century B.C. when Herodotus, uh, he wrote a history which sent Greeks scrambling across the Mediterranean to make sure that they saw Luxor and the pyramids in Egypt. And uh, they would have a life list, if you will. But Phoebe Snedinger, her life list involved bird watching. And she was a bird watcher. Uh, and in many years devoted to it, but she had been an enthusiastic birder her whole life. But then a doctor gave her a diagnosis of terminal cancer near her 50th birthday. She began traveling to ever more distant and daunting environments to see rare bird species and recorded all that she saw. And meanwhile, her disease went into remission. But by the time she died in 1999, she was 68 years old, and she had spotted at that point a record 8,400 species of different birds, nearly 85% of the world's winged creatures. Her achievement is an extreme example of a life list and uh, what life can become in the broader culture, things you experience while you have time. Of course, We use the term bucket list, don't we? Because that was a phrase that was made popular in the 2007 movie with Jack 
Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, they uh, played men with terminal illnesses that set out to do all the things they wanted to do. They had this bucket list. I didn't know till this week that that term came from the screenwriter, Justin Zachman. He said that phrase just happened to be what he called an epic to-do list pinned to his bulletin board, so he used it in the film, the bucket list. Whether you call it a life list or a bucket list, what is on yours? You know, do you have such a list? And what should be on your list maybe is the better question. Or perhaps as a believer in Jesus Christ who is bound for a place of infinite glory and infinite life and joy, do we really need a bucket list or a life list? They may not be much of a life goal. It does not explain why we are here and why God put us here. And someone, if someone asks you why nativity, why the birth, why your birth, what might you say? And those are good questions to contemplate and wrestle with as we look around. And so Jesus Christ had this beginning there, but he was an infant being. So Genesis chapters 1 through 3 contain this creation account, but there is an indicator, and we've already gotten a sense of it, there is a problem, isn't there, that we have a problem in verses 8 through 13. This is the bad news. This is the bad news. In verse 8, if you look at your copy of Scripture, it says that they, this is following up, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, uh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, Why have you done? What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we see that they heard God, they hid from God, they feared God. That's their response. This is the bad news. The sin has broken the fellowship they have had with God. Up to this point, they have had fellowship, face-to-face fellowship with God, the Creator God. And so there is a problem, and this set the tone for all of history. And all of us are recipients of this sin nature, this rebellion that has come our way. It tells us that they heard God and in, in, in the Garden of Eden. And it made me wonder, what does absolute holiness sound like? What does absolute holiness sound like? Well, we're given uh, some indicators in Scripture. Our English translations, they tend to tame and sanitize the Hebrew that is written here, that's translated into English. But it talks about the wind of the storm, the words that is used here when they said they heard him. It talks about the wind of the storm, not just a stroll in the garden and thunderous roar to do battle, to render judgment. Look at Psalm 29 with me. This tells us what holiness sounds like. In verse 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He breaks the cedars in pieces. The Lord uh, makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. And so there's this idea that this is a powerful event. This is absolute holiness coming, and God asks them questions. First of all, they hid from God. Well, they heard him, and then they hid from him in verse 8. And it reminds me of Revelation chapter 6 at the end times when God is judging the earth. It tells us that those who were rejecting God, it said, 
They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so you imagine the hearts of Adam and Eve, and that is what separates us from God is that sin. And in verse 10, they feared God. They were afraid. The effects of sin and punishment are punishment and provision. The man and woman had life. They had abundance, perfect fellowship, and now that was broken because of their choices and decisions. So because of our sin nature, instead of life, now there is death. Instead of pleasure, now pain. Instead of abundance, now meager subsistence by toil. Instead of perfect fellowship, alienation and conflict. It's interesting, as we read chapter 3, there are motifs, there are, there are mechanisms in the literature here which talk about death, toil, sweat, thorns, the tree, the struggle, the seed. They can all be later traced to Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Adam who never sinned. He became the curse for us. He sweat great drops of blood and bitter agony. He wore the crown of thorns, was hanged on the tree until he was physically dead and placed in the dust of death. And so this is a foreshadowing, if you will, of the Savior who is to come. The Romans 3.23 tell us the bad news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Theologians call this the, the doctrine of total depravity. In other words, we are in our sin. We have a sin nature. In the autumn of 2002, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, a priceless 15th century a marble statue of Adam toppled and shattered while no one was in the room. According to Time magazine, vandalism was initially suspected, but curators later determined that the life-size Venetian sculpture buckled under its own accord. The uh, museum's director said it will take a great deal of time and skill, but the piece can be restored. We have a problem, and the problem is the sin problem and has been with us every generation And we live with the consequences. Look at verses 14 through 19. Here is God's response. He addresses the serpent, first of all, of course, representative of Satan. He addresses the woman, then he addresses the man in 14 through 19. He uh, addresses the serpent first in verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so he spoke to the serpent. He has cursed the serpent. He becomes a crawler and he is going to be crushed. God's word to the serpent include an announcement that this thing will be eating dust, a perpetual reminder of mankind, the temptation and the fall. And there seems to be a a sense which uh, serpents are always that fearful thing Uh, when we see them. It's an oracle about the power behind the the snake. God said there would be perpetual struggle between satanic forces and mankind. There would be between Satan and the woman and their respective offspring or their seeds. And in verse 16, God spoke to the woman. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and your pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So there's painful childbirth, Male domination uh, that is going that is cursed upon the woman. And in 17 through 19, God spoke to the man. He said to Adam, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I have commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you turn to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will shall return. He will toil for his food. And, of course, all of us know that we toil for our food. Limited days, physical death. The great enemy, of course, is physical death, and yet it is a great blessing because God did not leave Adam and Eve in that state of sinfulness forever and ever, but he provided physical death. Romans three ten through 12, the Apostle Paul writes, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, for there is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is the Apostle Paul quoting uh, Psalm 14. And so the world is broken, isn't it? And we look around and it doesn't take a lot of insight to recognize that we live in an adverse, adverse, difficult time. Matt Woodley, in his book, The Story of Our Broken World, writes this following illustration. He writes that when he was about 10 years old, my dad, who was a medical doctor, received a special gift from one of his patients, a beautiful globe of the world with shiny sequins. The globe spun around on its base and played one of my dad's favorite songs. My dad proudly demonstrated how it worked. He hold, held it by the base, slowly count, wound it counterclockwise, and then released it, letting it spin while it played beautiful music. He told us, you can touch it, but don't wind it because you might break it. A week later, while my dad was at work, I found the globe, brought it to my room, although I heard my dad say, don't wind it up. I decided to wind it up anyway. I gave it a little twist and let it play. It played, but only for about five seconds. So I gave it another twist and another twist and five five more twists and then snap. The globe separated from the base. I desperately tried to fix it. I tried forcing the two pieces together. I tried gluing it, taping it. Finally, as I stared hopelessly at the pieces of the globe, I realized it was broken beyond my repair. So I went to my closet. I shut the door and hid It was Genesis 3 all over again. You know, our world is a broken globe. We all recognize that. It's been twisted too far, and we can't put it back together again. Relationships break. Sexuality is broken. We're slowly breaking the earth. Our hearts break. Nations break down and go to war. Our health breaks. Our politics break. All the glue, tape, positive thinkings, and we can't put it back together again. In fact, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about the three groans, G-R-O-A-N-S, in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know, Paul writes, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In verse 23, and not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And then the third groan is in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's an aspect in this life, in this world, as God is bringing us to consummation, that we do a lot of groaning, not only creation, but us and the Holy Spirit. We are at a loss. No matter how hard we try, there's always the curse that follows us. But the good news, where is the hope then? Where is the hope? In verses 15, if we go back to 15, God provides the solution 
Look again at verse 15, where under this curse against the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Remember that. And you shall, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Satan would cripple mankind, and we call that original sin. And uh, he would, God would send this seed to deliver the fatal blow against Satan. God said there would be a perpetual struggle between the, the satanic forces and mankind. It would be between Satan and the woman and their respective offspring or seeds. The offspring of the woman was Cain, and then all of humanity at large, and then Christ, who came in the line, would collectively be in him. The offspring of the serpent includes demons and anyone serving the kingdom of darkness, those whose father is the devil, John eight forty four. Satan would cripple mankind if you strike at his heel, but the seed, Christ, would deliver the fatal blow. He will crush your head. This has long been known, this verse, as the proto-evangelism. In other words, the first good news in the midst of cursing and, and uh, uh, discipline and punishment God is promising there will be a solution. We told that the one who is coming is the seed of the woman. Does that strike you as strange? It should, because that is a strange statement, because by God's very design, biologically, the seed is provided by the male members of every species. Here we are told that the woman will produce the offspring without the aid of a male. The verse gives us the first kernel of great truth, that will be more fully revealed down the road of Scripture. This verse is the first prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Satan did not understand it. Adam and Eve did not understand it. But God indicates he will send his lamb into the world through a woman without the involvement of a man. And, of course, that woman was the Virgin Mary. And we know that the birth of Jesus came about. Isaiah prophesied it in Isaiah 7:14. The angel Gabriel announced it to Mary and to Joseph. Why is this important? Why is this important when we think of nativity? The Bible clearly teaches that sin and the sin nature are handed down through man. Romans 5:12. Every person who has entered this world through the old-fashioned method of a biological physical union between a man and a woman has inherited the sin nature and is in fact a sinner at birth. Romans 3, Galatians 3 are very clear declarations of this. The birth of Jesus was very different, though. Since he came into this world without a human father, he was born without the taint of sin. He was born pure and sinless, thus he is qualified to die for the sins of humanity, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Of course, what makes the birth of Jesus particularly unique is the fact that he was no ordinary baby, baby, but he was and is God in the flesh, excuse me, John 1 and Philippians chapter 2. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. More than that, now having been justified or declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were <coughs> excuse me, enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, Paul writes, but we exalt in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through Jesus Christ, that separation, that fellowship has been repaired, has been healed. Adam's faith, this is the, provides the solution. Adam's faith in God's provision. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So Eve is the hope in the midst of judgment because they knew there was a Savior coming down the line. God had planned this. Divine covering was God's provision. Even though they were expulsed, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, uh, it proved the serpent's promise. They would, it proved his fakeness of his promise, the hollowness of his promise that they would not die. In verse 4, Adam and Eve continued some sort of life, but it was through the sweat of their brow. But now the cost of sin is important. It was an unquiet conscience, all of those things. Christ's atonement, he clothes believers in righteousness. Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of the law of the life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sin is the problem. Jesus Christ is the solution. This holiday season, remember that Jesus Christ and why he came, this babe in the manger. There's a famous painting in Manhattan in Metropolitan Museum of Art again. It hangs there. It was by the 16th century artist El Greco. And uh, the painting is titled The Vision of St. John, and it was completed about 1614. And it looks like it could have been painted in the early 20th century. It's an interesting piece of art. It's very contemporary looking, even though it is very old. But it's a, a, a painting depicting Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11, the opening of the fifth seal of the martyrs who bore faithful witness of Jesus Christ in that time. And it looks heavenward. The, the, the main figure, John, is looking heavenward and uh, looking for the Lamb. It's a startling revelation of another reality El Greco painted there. But the painting that we view today is only half of what it was when El Greco painted it. Uh, the canvas it doesn't tell the whole story because all the figures in it are ra- look, raising up, but there's nothing above them because it's been cut off. At least half the painting at some point was uh, in a restoration project, and they cut off the upper part, which is the part of God uh, reaching out to mankind and providing for them. So it's only half of a payment, painting, and it doesn't tell the whole story. And that's the world we live in today. We live in the world that where we seem to receive gifts on our own accord, and our own effort. All of them are looking for something right here. And uh, God sent us this birth, this nativity, and set it in motion in Genesis chapter 3. And so today, the answer, of course, is, is what about this middle part of my life between birth, the date of my birth, and the date of passing from this earth? What does this all mean? Of course, the simplest answer is John 3.16, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. And any time in scripture when there is a promise or command, I look at the uh, consequence of that promise, and then I look at the condition to receive that promise. And of course, the promise is everlasting life. That is the consequence in John 3.16. The condition, what is the condition? It's believe in Jesus for everlasting life. The serpent's temptation was, is we can be like God, and yet Jesus Christ said, this is my body which is given to you, take and eat. 
And so this morning, as we approach the Lord's table, this first Sunday of the month, and we have come to the Lord's table, we uh, observe communion or the Lord's table.